Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Yangshi Chu about her latest book, The Night Tiger. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series. Yangshi Chu is a Malaysian writer of Chinese descent. After receiving her undergraduate degree from Harvard, she worked as a management consultant before writing her New York Times best-selling debut novel, The Ghost Bride, which is being made into a six-part series by Netflix Mandarin Original. Yang Shi lives in California with her family and several chickens and loves to eat and read, often at the same time. The Night Tiger would not have been possible without large quantities of dark chocolate. Before I welcome Yang Shi on the show, I'd like to share my review of her novel. The Night Tiger is much more than just a fantasy novel. It's also a mystery, a historical novel, and a love story. Yang Shi Chu accomplishes all this in one deft package. Set in Malaysia in the 1930s in the state of Perak, the Night Tiger closely follows three narrators mysteriously interlinked by their names. There is a clever orphan named Wren who works as a houseboy, a spunky and funny young beauty, Jilin, and a British surgeon, William Acton. Though the novel is grounded in mundane concerns, such as Jilin's effort to pay back her mother's gambling debt before her stepfather discovers it, there are also numinous aspects such as the waking dream states that Jilin and Ren enter, during which they communicate with Ren's dead brother. Even as Jilin tries to cope with the restricted options available to a woman of that time period, and Surgeon William Acton grapples with his lusty urges, a shimmer of the supernatural imbues the narrative, and a sense of transcendent beauty weaves its way through the chapters. One of the supernatural aspects concerns weird tigers. Wren's former master, a colleague of the surgeon William Acton, has recently died. Before his passing, he implored Wren, his royal houseboy, to locate his missing finger. It seems if he is buried without it, his spirit will roam as a weird tiger. Wren has only 49 days during which he can bury the finger with a corpse. Should he not succeed, the spirit of his former master will never find peace. The book opens as Jilin has discovered the missing finger in her pocket as the result of a chance encounter with a salesman. She's unaware of its significance, but would like nothing better than to be rid of this macabre item. Through a series of events, Jilin and Ren meet, exchange stories, and befriend each other. Their fates are linked through ancient Confucian tradition with other characters. 
Jilin Ren and William Acton all have names which denote Confucian virtues. There is also Jilin's alluring stepbrother, whose motivation for helping Jilin is shrouded, and Ren's dead brother, Yi. Then there is one more character. That one is deeply flawed and may bring doom onto the other four. Yang Shi's characters are engrossing, beckoning you to look deep into their psyches, and a setting of colonial Malaysia is a refreshing change to Eurocentric fantasy literature. We're going to welcome Yang Shi on the show and have her read a bit for her novel. Hello, listeners. Today we have Yang Shi Chu talking about her book, The Night Tiger, and we're going to start off with her reading from the book from the first chapter. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. So chapter one, Kamunting, Malaya, May 1931. The old man is dying. Ren can see it in the shallow breaths, the sunken face, and the skin stretched thinly over his cheekbones. Yet he wants the shutters open. Irritably, he beckons the boy over, and Ren, his throat tight as though he swallowed a stone, throws open the second-story window. Outside is a brilliant sea of green, the waving tops of jungle trees, and a blue sky like a fever dream. The tropical glare makes Ren flinch. He moves to shield his master with his shadow, but the old man stops him with a gesture. Sunlight emphasizes the tremor of his hand with its ugly stump of a missing finger. Ren remembers how just a few months ago that hand could still calm babies and suture wounds. The old man opens his watery blue eyes, those colorless foreign eyes that had frightened Ren so much in the beginning, and whispers something. The boy bends his cropped head closer. Remember. The boy nods. Say it. The hoarse rasp is fading. When you are dead, I will find your missing finger, Ren replies in a clear, small voice. And, he hesitates, and bury it in your grave. Good. The old man draws a rattling breath. You must get it back before the 49 days of my soul are over. The boy has done many such tasks before, quickly and competently. He'll manage, even as his narrow shoulders convulse. Don't cry, Ren. At times like this, the boy looks far younger than his years. The old man is sorry. He wishes he could do it himself, but he's exhausted. Instead, he turns his face to the wall. Yeah, that's nice. So let's oh, start. Thank you. <laughs> let's start by introducing some of the people from your book. Uh, we actually have five interlinking characters whose names embody Confucian virtues. We just heard about Ren. He's the young houseboy, and his name stands for benevolence. He has a dead twin, Yi, who represents righteousness. Then there are another set of quasi twins. They're not exactly twins. It's, <laughs> There's a lot of twins in the book. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, pairings, I think, who are exploring yeah. different couplings. There's Xilin and her stepbrother, Shin. They're born on the same day. Xilin's name is phonetically written the same as zhe, meaning wisdom. And Shin's name is like the character Xian, which means faithfulness. Then there's a mysterious fifth person, Li, whose name refers to doing things in the proper order. 
So uh, Yi is referring to the group, and in a dream, he explains to Jilin, the young woman, that there is something a bit wrong with each of them. I interpreted that to mean that they sometimes act in ways opposed to the very trait that their name should embody. For example, the handsome boy, Shin, is a bit of a heartbreaker, and the young girl, Jilin, is not always wise. As the book unfolds, they seem to be on a journey to strengthen the virtues that their names promise. Did you set out to do that, and, and would you agree with that interpretation? Yes, actually, um, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I thought about the five characters in the book and how, you know, Chinese actually like to name people. I mean, you can choose characters for your name, and the Confucian virtues do sometimes show up in people's names, often in combination with something else, right? And I did think, wouldn't it be interesting um, if you were supposed to be like your name, but you didn't live up to it? Um, and that's much easier to see in Chinese than, than, let's say, in English, where the meanings of names have become obscured. But for Chinese, you can literally say, oh, your name means this, your name means that, um, your name means precious lily, or your name is some virtue. And so the one of, there's two main, this is sort of like a dual narrative in the book, which is um, more of that twinning we were talking about. Um, and I, I thought... You know, the idea of mirror images runs throughout the novel. I was very interested in that. So mm -hmm. there's not only the world of the living, but the world of the dead, and you know, the world of servants and masters, sort of like upstairs and downstairs. You know, sometimes I describe this book as a bit like uh, Downton Abbey of the tropics, you know, in which <laughs> the servants and masters had, had their own lives, right? And I did think in the great houses of those days, the masters probably had no idea what the servants were up to. Although the servants would always know, like we know, like who's seeing who, right? Um, and so, you know, continuing with this dichotomy, I thought within the very name of each character, there is this duality. So uh, um, Jilin's name is Zhilian in Mandarin, which, and, and the Zhilian, her name, means wisdom. And as you pointed out, she, she makes some unwise decisions. She's clever, and at the same time, she contradicts herself. The same goes for for Shin, you know, you know that he's both loyal and he's unfaithful at the same time. Ren is benevolence, which is, you know, the greatest Confucian virtue. He has a wonderful heart. He is asked to do something terribly gruesome and, and so on and so forth. So absolutely. I, I'm so glad that you picked up on that. You know, I am struck, uh, not now, of course, but in Puritan times, especially women were saddled with names like chastity or patience, which were probably quite a burden in a way. They were the Puritan right. virtues of faith. Yes, absolutely. We still have some faiths. Yeah. And uh, those are hard yeah. to live up to sometimes. Yes. I think a name has a lot of hopes and dreams in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and whether or not they get lived up to is, is always a big question. So we've got Lee. I think most of the uh, Chinese virtues like wisdom and faithfulness are apparent, but Lee represents somewhat of a challenge. What does it mean to do things in the proper order? Can you give some examples to help uh, your uh, Western readers yeah. understand? Uh, yes, I, I'll try my best. Um, so all the virtues, you know, the Confucian virtues are really actually, the five virtues are supposed to make up um, a, 
the perfect human, like a whole human. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all things that Confucius thought was very helpful. Um, and, you know, I, I think as I mentioned in the book, all the virtues have deeper and broader meanings, right? Rather than just faithfulness, it means loyalty, fidelity, lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Lee, in this case, is something um, I think that a lot of people find uh Different. Li, by Confucius being Li, it means that a proper ritual, there is a time and a place to do everything. Um, so, for example, like um, in those times, uh, uh, filial piety was extremely important. Yes. So, and when, if your parent died, there was a number of days mourning for like how close someone was to you. So, I can't quite remember all the times, but if it was someone like a parent, you would probably be in mourning for three years. Stuff like that. So, Li... If you were actually following Lee properly, then you would do the correct sequence of things. You would do everything in the right order. And there's, I think, the intimation of keeping some sort of harmony and balance by doing that. I think there's also the connotation of um, being willing to wait, you know, not to rush, to do everything in the right way. Does that make sense? I think it does. I think in one level it just... Is referring to social mores again, just like things they had back in the days where Western women were called chastity or humility or patience. Mm-hmm. There were just certain things one didn't do. One one kept to the ways. It was kind of the mm-hmm. the social agreement, but going beyond mm-hmm. the social agreement, uh, we don't want to reveal who Lee's character is, but. Perhaps that character is greedy for certain things to come to them quickly mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. In, a, in an impatient sense, like, I don't care uh, what means I have to use to achieve this end. I yes, can understand absolutely. it like that. Yes, and also a disruption in harmony. As um, I, I think Confucianism also values, um, how do you say, like, to a certain sense, suppression of your own desires in order mm-hmm. to do the right thing. Like, always to choose the right thing, to do things at the right time, with the right timing, with the right patience, not to rush things, to wait your turn, to do things in order. So, absolutely. Yeah, there is the the proper relationship to all other things. You could actually almost place Lee at the center as a central virtue to be in harmony with unfolding events. Yeah, I think they they're all inextricably entangled with each mm-hmm. other, but it's considered something definitely very important to have as a human being. And Confucius did also think that a lot of the rites, you know, performing the rites was an important thing too. Mm-hmm. The rituals well, you were talking about the mirroring before, and mm-hmm. there are also, there's these five individuals, and one of them, Lee, is is just out in the front doing the wrong thing. And then there's two pairs, and there are also symmetry in the two pairs. Uh, each pair is a twin of a sort, and one of the pairs must accept the end of their relationship and the second pair finds their way to a new way of relating. Their relationship definitely changes as well. And uh, I just wanted you to comment a little more about the thoughts you might have had as you crafted those two relationships. Oh, well, you know, um, I 
I write in a very organic way. <laughs> so it's, it, it may not be the best and most efficient way. I mean, I'm sure I have, um, I have other friends who are writers and I do know people who actually plot the whole book out chapter by chapter. You know, they've got post-it notes. I um, hear about those people. I, I don't actually know any. <laughs> so in your writing life, I'm assuming that you're, you're also an organic writer. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, when I started writing this book, I didn't actually know what was going to happen. So I just started writing and the story started forming itself. The characters appeared and they had all these relationships with each other. And it was actually a really uh, a, a great deal of joy for me to follow the story and see all these things play out. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, and not to reveal too much about the plot, right. um, Part of the book is about the mystery of these five people and why are they connected? How are they connected? Should they be connected? Should things be remade? So these were all these were all things that I was um, sort of playing around with. And um, as I started writing, sometimes I was surprised. <laughs> you know, I don't know whether you felt it either, but sort of like, oh, you're writing along. And you think, oh, I see. So that's why that happened, you know. And it leads to sort of a lot of talking to oneself, um, which I try to do at home, <laughs> not that in public. <laughs> well, I think it's the characters. If you have strong characters, uh, more than just one strong character, which your novel does, uh, I think the characters all kind of take on a life of their own. And once you create them and you create that space in your head, they do start interacting with each other if you've made strong and real characters. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the things they decide are a surprise to the author. It is true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a great pleasure, right? When Mm -hmm. things are going well, it's like there's a movie unwinding in your head. And when things are going badly, at least for me, I feel like, oh my goodness, what a terrible idea. I have no no idea what I'm doing now. (laughs) Yeah, or or one feels perhaps. But I thought that movie was perfectly clear, but I guess everyone would need a special set of glasses to be able to read that one. And then we learn and we get better. So your novel also explores different cultures. We have the British colonialists, the Malaysian Chinese, and the Malaysian Indians. The fifth character, Lee, is actually British. The Chinese character, Lee, just happens to be part of that given name. And in contrast, the young Malaysian woman, Jilin, she's a dancehall girl. And she uses a Western name at work, the name Louise. They call her that because she's had her hair done to look like the actress Louise Brooks. Can you comment about how different characters take on identities of a foreign culture? Uh, Because one would think the dominant culture would be the one that inspire adaptability. But actually also Lee has, Lee is a Westerner and yet, is familiar with uh, Chinese culture as well. So it works both ways. Mm. You, you know, um, so I, I'm originally from Malaysia, and one of the, the great things, I think, is that Malaysia's um, historically been a very uh, multi-ethnic society. You know, so that there are Malays and um, Chinese and Indians and also many other peoples, like um, I think there were there. Are, 
it used to be a Portuguese colony and a Dutch colony before that. Mm-hmm. There's a Eurasian colony, and um, a, a lot of and we're neighbours with a lot of people in Southeast Asia. So there's a confluence of cultures, you know, a, a little melting pot, and lots and lots of good food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I think it's always um, it's a really vibrant and interesting society, and I feel that. Um, that's one of the things I, I wanted to bring across. That there's all these people. Everybody shares things from their different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you live abroad, as many of the British did at that time, many of them were in the colonies. They were working, you know, or, or they were posted from place to place. And you might be somewhere in any of what is now one of the Commonwealth countries, right? So if you work for the service, you might be in India, and then you might be sent to. Um, you know, to Malaya, or you might have gone to um, Burma, what they call that, uh, Myanmar. So you would be in the region, you know, um, or you might be in Africa. And the funny thing is that um, a friend was reading this book afterwards, and he was British, and he grew up in, I think he grew up in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he said, some of the descriptions in this book, the colonial descriptions, he said, are incredibly nostalgic to him. And I said, that's that's probably absolutely true because they replicated many things like the way the railway systems were, um, the way government ran, the way they did the schools. There's a great sense of familiarity. And I see that also throughout the Commonwealth, yes. um, at least to those Commonwealth countries I've been to. So it's not a surprise that things um, rub off on one another and, and in turn create a third culture. You know, one that's made up of all these other things. Yes, where they're kind of relating to each other with shared commonalities. And even the British, who did continue in some cases to wear uncomfortable Western clothing in tropical climates, of course, still they were touched in turn uh, by the culture. For example, in your book, they're all sitting down to eat Malaysian specialties at their party, so... Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the interesting thing, too, is I, I was actually remarking on this to my kids, that this kind of milky sweet tea is drunk all over, um, like, Commonwealth. Oh, yes, and colonies. tea. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, India, Sri Lanka, Hong Kong, you know, everyone drinks this. They have Everyone has their local variation, but I think it's because um, people are drinking tea, and then the milk that they had was condensed milk or evaporated milk. Yes. And there's many variations, but it's, it's at the same time, it's really comforting and familiar. And I am, by the way, also addicted to milk tea myself. Yes, I love <laughs> tea as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think tea is a great metaphor for that. Well, uh, speaking of realms that touch upon each other, we also have the realm of the dead and the realm of the living. I was actually quite pleased that I thought the realm of the dead was very subtle. You know, it wasn't over-the-top horrific like it is in a lot of books. It was just like a a station, a way station. So uh, Ren and Jilin have long conversations with Yi, who lives in the world of the dead. He speaks to them through lucid dreams. Along, who is William's older servant, warns Ren not to talk to the dead. What's the danger of talking with Yi? Doesn't he have some helpful guidance? I, I, I suppose so. Um, but I was in in the book. I was also thinking like that. There is a question of who belongs 
where, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, to what area. And there really also is this Chinese superstition that you really should not have dealings with the dead. So um, you may know this, but, you know, Chinese have um, yang and ying, which is like a negative and positive. Mm-hmm. And right. ghosts are supposed to be negative. So there's so many literary stories, you know, uh, traditions of China. Actually, the ghost story is a very um, common Chinese literary trope in which ghosts come and visit you. They sometimes they even you may even marry a ghost. You know, yes, your wedding. first book, <laughs> right? Yeah, my first book. That's right. It was about about a ghostly wedding. Ghost um, bride. And they come, for everyone who's yeah, they listening. come in your dreams. Oh, thank you. They they come in your dreams, but you really are not supposed to have dealings with them because they they're supposed to live off your your life essence. And if mm-hmm. you have many, many dealings with the dead, then um, it's, it's not good for you. So that's what old, what old Wong tells Ren, like, don't speak to the dead. Um, he's echoing what is actually a very common Chinese perception that you shouldn't meddle with the dead, you know. And Confucius himself also said, let's not speak of ghosts. He, he actually never really talked about the afterlife at all. I was kind of playing a devil's advocate here. I mean, I think most Westerners also would, for example, avoid spending the night in a graveyard. Or <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, there is some sort of lure, right? There is something about the forbidden or the, the taboo, um, the perhaps the human curiosity of mm-hmm. what lies beyond the veil. Yes, definitely. Um, so I, I think you're right. There is this push and pull mm-hmm. because, at, you know, every one of us will have to eventually die and we'll have to go. It is a journey that you will have to make alone. Uh, and it is um, something that we, I think we all wonder about at some point in our lives. So uh, your five characters, as I said before, are named after virtues. And uh, there's a comment in your book. A man who abandoned his virtue, lost his humanity, and became no better than a beast. So that brings us mm-hmm. to the subject of the were-tiger. And there's one prowling around, kind of scary, in various chapters. We believe that to be a man who literally has become a beast, he seems to have a preference for long-haired women that he dispatches. But I wonder... There's the literal were-tiger, but does a man literally have to become a beast to lose his virtue? Are there metaphorical beasts in your novel? Yes. Um, I think you, you're, you're bringing up a great point, um, and one which I thought about when I was writing. You know, when we're talking about dualities and mirror worlds, right? It, it mm-hmm. does make one think a bit of like the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing. Like, who are you when you look in the mirror? Who looks back at you, right? Yeah. And the metaphor, the beast, the weird, the weird creature, the shapeshifter, you will find that in many, many different cultures. And I, and I do believe it is also that question, that curiosity we have of who is this person? You know, can I trust them? Where did they come from? You know, what are they doing? And a beast in some ways, um, trans- um, transcends social mores, right? Yes. So we're, a werewolf will, kill and eat, which we're not supposed to do. So there's a sort of frisson of what does that actually, what does that actually mean? Um, and I, I thought that was an idea that um, 
came out a lot when I was writing because the characters in the novel um, all have to make decisions. You know, some of them more moral than others. Yes. <laughs> um, but that's always the question. You know, and it's also part, I think, of walking the Confucian path. Like, are you making the right decisions? You know, why are you making decisions? And if you lose all your social mores, what does that make you? What is the essence of civilization? You know, isn't it an artificial construct? Yeah, so that, that, is, that was what I was thinking. And, and you're right. The, the shadow of the beast within us, um, I think, lurks throughout the book. Correct. We have the virtues, the social mores, the ability to hold back from what you want to do to think about it. And then on the other hand, we have what in the West are, were just regarded as the lower appetites, violence, impatience, must have that lust. There's some lust in the book, too, that's dealt with in various ways. Uh, some people are more patient or somewhat patient about getting their lust fulfilled, while other people are just really ruled by it. And then there's also loneliness. I, I felt like loneliness was an impetus for action for various characters. Three of them, Jilin, William Acton, and Ren, they all have periods where they feel lonely, but they want different things. They see different solutions to their loneliness. Tell us a little bit about what they each yearn for. Ah, yes. You know, I remember reading... I forgot where it was. Maybe it was the Guardian or something like that. That loneliness is sort of endemic in our modern culture, mm -hmm. you know. And Durkheim um, wrote about Anomi. At least I think it was him, unless I'm getting him mixed up. No, no, Durkheim was suicide. Um, anyway, it, but the, the whole idea of industrialization and of people getting together and living in close contact with each other and yet being terribly lonely. You know, I think we see that in cities nowadays, and it's always been there. Loneliness, in some ways, is a human condition. It comes from living in your head. You know, we have this consciousness that lives in our heads. And I think it's something that all of us have experienced at different times and in different ways. And do you know what I mean? Like, there's different feelings of loneliness. Right, um, and different ages, too. I mean, Zhirlin's yeah. a beautiful young woman. Yeah. She would like... A romantic relationship, even though uh, the boy who pursues her doesn't interest her. And Ren's young. He's an orphan. He would like a family. And I think William w would like acceptance. He's kind of an outcast mm -hmm. from his own society. And so right. there are those barriers for all of them that are appropriate for their age and professional status. Yeah, and I thought the quality of loneliness and why we are lonely, it, it occurs for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. And yet it is a painful sensation. Well, not always painful. Sometimes it actually feels kind of okay to be lonely, you know. <laughs> um, sometimes it can be sort of refreshing. But at other times, I think there is the basic human desire to connect, you know. Uh, that is part of being a, a social animal, as mm -hmm. we are, right? Um, and... Um, I think that's that's a great point. When I was writing the book, I, I didn't actually think um, specifically about loneliness as a theme. But you're you're right. You know, it comes out when you look at look at it as a whole. I think it's part of the whole um, journey thing too. You know, how they say every book is a journey. Right. <laughs> Someone actually told me that. But um, and that is literally true. But in as part of you can't really make 
real discoveries without spending some time examining yourself, I think. And loneliness is part of that. I think a, a certain amount of empty space and a recognition that, hey, something's missing. And what is that something? And why do I want it? You have to be alone first to identify what it is you want, perhaps, because in yeah. certain cases, like in Jilin's family, what they want for her, even what her mother wants, what she's very close to her mother, those are not the things she wants. So she has mm -hmm. to be away from them to clarify. She certainly doesn't want to be a dance hall girl, but I think... Mm -hmm. In the process of being away, she begins to dare to think about what and who she really wants. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a certain amount of space one needs in one's head mm -hmm. um, to figure out what. And sometimes, you know, sometimes some of us never get there. And it's actually very easy to fill up that space. It's perhaps easier now than before because, you know, you can always watch TV, play a video game or something else. And it's also somewhat scary, I think, to confront yourself, your true self. So, you know, going back to the theme of twins, like twins have always fascinated me. And I'm sure they fascinate a lot of people as well. You know, there's lots and lots of um, myths and legends about twins. They're special, right? yeah. But when I was, yeah, but when I was a little kid, I remember reading this book. It was some, some sort of fairy book or fantasy book, and it ex explained the doppelganger and that freaked me out because I thought, huh, it's about you know, the legend of the doppelganger is right. that you will see someone who looks you know, from a distance you're like, oh, this person looks familiar right? And then when you get closer there's this dawning horror that wait, that's me and at the moment when you realize it and the doppelganger turns around and locks eyes with you, is when you will die. So I've always thought that's a fascinating metaphor. What does it actually mean? When you truly see yourself for what you are, then death ensues. And why is that? Is it the death of the ego? You know, is it, is it perhaps too unbearable for us to really confront ourselves? Um, anyway, I just thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And another interesting thing about the doppelganger is all the choices that the other made that we did not. We're always in a position to choose to move forward, even making no choice at all as a choice. So at any point in our life, there, there are all these other paths that might have been taken that would result in people who are somewhat us, but yet are not us. They've mm -hmm. had yeah, our like, experience. Yeah, like multiple of, births, uh, uh -huh. worlds. What do they call multiverses, too? Right, right? timelines. So I, I, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You always think that, what is it, if there's some really big event that maybe one world splits off from the other? Um, but I think as people, we're always full of, um, to a certain extent, we're all also dogged by regret. And big regret and also little regret. Even things like, I should have stood in the other shopping line and not this one. You know? mm -hmm. So it feels like the day is peppered with you know big and small regrets. So that's a great point. We have free will, but it's both a curse and a blessing. <laughs> mm, yes, yes. You know, and also the predictive ability, um, which is a curse and a blessing. Like, can you imagine different scenarios? Mm -hmm. Right? And that's really helpful. And at the same time, it does lead to like, oh, no, I should have done this. Right? It, it does lead to a lot of regret. And then always the idea, I would have been happier, but who really knows? 
But you must be in a pretty happy place right now because the Night Tiger is being released February 12th, and it's being released simultaneously in a variety of formats, including audio. And I understand you narrated the book yourself uh, and also your previous novel. So a lot of authors don't do that. You did. Uh, from the reading we got today, I would imagine it's it's a very good piece. Was it an easy decision for you to undertake the narration? Oh, that's very kind of you. And, you know, um, for my first book and this book, I, I, ha- I asked my publisher, could I please audition for this oh. narrator, the narrator, for the audiobook? And the reason for that was, you know, the very sort of... Um, um, multilingual quality yes. of Malaysia or, or Malay as it was then. And the book is peppered with um, words in Chinese two dialects like Mandarin and Cantonese. And there's some Malay in there as well. And I thought, oh, no, I, if, if they can't pronounce it properly, uh, probably, uh, properly, I shall feel so bad. And my, my, my family at home in Malaysia will be so upset. <laughs> so I was like, could, could you, would you consider auditioning me to read the book? And um, they're very nice about it. And, and so they let me. And um, it was actually a lot of fun. I think um, I was told by the, so the, the books were both recorded in a sound studio. So in this sort of like sound booth with earphones on and, and an engineer to help you, sometimes a director as well. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really an amazingly interesting environment. It takes a lot of, um, I think it takes a lot out of you, but it's very rewarding. Um, although when I was reading the book, I think it took us about, for both books, it was about five days straight reading, about maybe eight hours a day. Uh, oh, because they will, like... you'll read. Yeah, and then they'll check you because, um, you know, they'll catch stuff like you won't finish the ends of your words. You'd be like, oh, you swallowed that word. Could you mm-hmm. repeat it again? And then they catch, sometimes they catch ambient noise, like stomach rumblings. <laughs> I actually, and then, you know, they, they tell you to bring things in like green apple slices. That was really helpful because the pectin keeps your, your throat smooth. Oh, and it also stops. Yeah, there's lots of other things like noises, like clicky noises that we make with our lips and tongue that they have to take out for the audiobook. Uh, just stuff like that. And beyond that, I think fiction is always kind of an emotional exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, reading a novel is an emotional connection with the book. And when I was reading it, I was trying to read it in a not too boring way. So that, that takes a lot out of you as well, um, trying to read with expression, etc. But I, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of fun, and I was so grateful for the opportunity to read it. Well, I'm sure all the pronunciation is perfect on it now. I know what you mean about that. I was thinking about my historic series takes place in Switzerland, and I threw in some words in dialect here and there. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my American readers were like, well, what's that word? I explain it. But still, uh, each each mm-hmm. culture has has their unique bits and food, too. So yeah. my last question is mm-hmm. going to be about food. Because, yes, on your website, (laughs) Yanshi says that she loves reading, writing, and food. So I wondered if you had a favorite recipe that ended up 
in the Night Tiger? Ah,、uh, you know, this was actually one of the fun things about the book, and the and I would say the great thing about writing books is that one can pursue one's interests in the name of. Research.、Mm-hmm. So, um, at one point, I was just reading lots and lots of cookbooks,、um, and maybe you know, and you're right to say you know this, but perhaps also it's a two-way street, right? What you write about, what you're interested in, comes from what you read a while ago. So one of the things that I was interested in is all this colonial food. Um, so we, you know, we talked a bit about milk tea and how you you found that. All over the place, all over the Commonwealth. Yes, and you had、um, Horlicks malt beverage in there. I yeah, was yeah, there's Milo, all kinds of stuff. You know, there, there's some stuff which is instantly nostalgic, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, certain things,、um, and I, I was also struck by the fact that you know the book is set in the ni- in 1931, so they already had tinned food.、Um, so, and there's certain brands that. Are still around, or the idea of keeping butter in tins, even、mm-hmm. though it was tropics. You know, you could get butter from Australia in the tins. They're very nostalgic. I actually talk to my parents a lot. You know,、um, they grew up in that part of Malaysia, although not in the 1930s. Not, they're not quite that old. But、um, um, that would have been like my, my grandparents' time and stuff. And they had my my dad can name like so many kinds of food that they had and so many treats. And、um, many years ago, I actually found an, an old cookbook by the, this lady named Ellis Handy. My mum had, and I think the the one that she had was reprinted in the like fifties or the sixties. But I remember reading that cookbook as a child and being so fascinated because the measurements weren't very exact. So it was sort of、um, tropical cuisine, you know. I think Ellis Handy might have been a British lady,、mm-hmm. um, and but she had recipes for curries. Things like that, and and she had very exact recipes, but they read like your aunt talking to you, you know. So it would say like, take a good sized coconut, you know, make sure that it's dried on the outside, crack it open, grate it, squeeze the milk three times, you know, very specific like that. And then the measurements were random; they were sort of like,、um, and use a large teacup, so <laughs> three teacups of water. <laughs> Or a dollop. Use a dollop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something really charming about that. But at the same time, you know, like your teacup and my teacup might be completely different sizes. And I remember reading them and just feeling like there was this whole atmosphere about that book, about those recipes, about things that were fashionable at the time. And it's also very charming. So、um, I like to eat and I like to cook. When I was writing the book, I, I put in a lots of food, which we subsequently had to take out because、yeah. the book was too long. I think at one point my agent was like, "They have so many meals. Could we could we remove some of these <laughs> meals?" And I thought, "Yeah, yeah, they can't just be lists of things that people like to eat or th- things that I like to eat." So my my kids were youngish, and so I I did do a lot of this writing for the book late at night after they'd gone to bed. And then I'd be writing, writing, and feel increasingly hungry. So I'd be drooling over, oh,、mm, I really want to eat this. Like I want to eat toasted bread with cold salted butter.、Um, I want to eat kaya, which is this、um, custard made with it's sort of an egg custard, caramelized egg custard,、um, flavored with pandan leaves. It sounds terrible, but it tastes divine. And I put lots of other things in the book, things like sago,、um, which is a kind of a clear I suppose you could call it a pudding. 
it looks like frog's eggs. Uh-huh. And then over it, you pour fresh coconut milk and this basically like a syrup made from dark coconut sugar. And it's really good. It's not tapioca, is it? Or grass jelly? You know, it is now. Now it is tapioca. In the old days, my mother told me the sago, like the real sago was made from the pith of the sago palm. Oh. So it's kind of a palm tree that they would cut down and then scrape out the starchy insides and form it into these like colorless little balls. Um, but you can almost never find real sago anymore. I think you might be able to get it in Papua New Guinea. And what we use instead in Malaysia is um, tapioca starch. So like these little sago balls, they're clear. They're very pretty. They have that in the in the tea houses. Yeah, mm-hmm. they do. They call it bubble tea or boba. Right. But what they often has it. Um, they many of the pearls are dark brown, and the ones that we use for um, sago gula melaka is what we call it. This special dessert. It's clear and it, they're smaller. But they don't have much taste, but the pleasure is the texture. You know, under the fresh coconut milk and gula malaka is what we call the um, coconut sugar. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very tasty. I'm drooling. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may be time for brunch for you. <laughs> well, we don't want to keep you from your lunch or brunch, but uh, just before we're off the air, do tell us about what you're working on right now. Oh, okay. So I'm working on my third novel, and I am a very slow writer. Um, I think I think The Night Tiger took me about four years to write. Half of which time was spent in editing it down because it, it just grew too long. Um, we, we had to cut it practically in half uh, to get it out. So I'm writing my third novel. I'm not quite sure where it's going Yes, mm-hmm. you know, it, that's the whole seat of the pants writing. Um, but I'm excited about it. At the same time, sometimes I think about it and I think, oh, where is this book going? What is this book about? So it, it's a process of discovery. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Yang Shi Chu about her latest novel, The Night Tiger. To find out more about Yang Shi, visit her website at yschu.com. That's C H O O for her last name. You can also see the Netflix teaser of her first book, The Ghost Bride, on her website. She's also on Twitter under Yang Shi Chu, and that's at Y-A-N-G-S-Z-E-C-H-O-O. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, which begins with The Falcon Flies Alone. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. I'm on Twitter under at Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Till next time.